Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Welcome, everyone, once again to the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Ben Sternke, and I'm here with Bishop Todd Hunter. Todd, how are you today? Hey, Ben. Good. Great to see you. Looking forward to this guest. I am pupil to this master we're to hear from, so I'm excited yeah, about it. Yeah, so uh, the, the spoiler alert or a teaser, mm-hmm. that's a teaser. Um, today we are finishing our series on the gifts of Anglicanism for the body of Christ, where we've been exploring some of the treasures that we've received from the Anglican tradition and how we can steward these riches within a contextual, kingdom-centric, spirit-empowered mission in the modern world. So we've talked about the centrality of the Eucharist, the formational power of liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer, the Church Fathers and Mothers. We've talked about bishops, and uh, last week we talked about the church calendar. And today we're concluding this series with our final topic, which is the Anglican tradition of social concern and justice. And our guest today is the Reverend Bill Haley, who is the Executive Director of Coracle, an organization that seeks to inspire and enable people to be the presence of God in the brokenness of the world through spiritual formation for kingdom action. We're going to come around to that uh, phrase after a bit. But Bill, welcome to the C4SO podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm both delighted and honored. So thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, maybe we could start with this. Just introduce yourself a bit uh, to us, to our audience, for those who don't know you. Uh, what should we know about you besides what I've already said, that you're the executive director of this organization? Yeah, so, yeah, it, it, you'd have to know that I was married to Tara, my okay. lovely wife of 21 years. Um, I don't know why she said yes or what she's still doing with me, but thanks be to God, she did and is. Um, and then we have four kids, Liam, Iona, Karis, and Mara. Uh, and three of those are teenagers, so we are in the thick of it. You yeah. are. Yeah, very good. Um, well, our, our um, series is the Gifts of Anglicanism for the Body of Christ, um, and so part of the reason we're having you on is that you are an Anglican. Um, and so I, I'm wondering, I ask all of this, I ask this question of all of our guests, did you grow up in the Anglican tradition? And if not, uh, tell us a story about your journey into Anglicanism. What was it that drew you into this tradition Yeah, here to begin with? Well, the simple answer is no, I did not grow up in this. In fact, um, in fact, uh, I grew up in a tradition that viewed Episcopalians and Anglicans with great suspicion. Okay. Um, they weren't as bad as Catholics, but they were close. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I grew up uh, initially Plymouth Brethren, which is mm-hmm. a rather sort of almost fundamentalistic denomination, and then um, moved over to the Baptist tradition. In fact, I was a member at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis under John Piper oh. for a good five years. Oh, wow. um, and then God, in His mercy, allowed me to travel and see the world. And I spent about 16 months traveling around the world, um, seeing things. Um, seeing the way the world actually is and also seeing the breadth mm. of the church the way that it actually is. And, and I, I came back from that trip. Um, I, could, I could have articulated this to you then, and I can do it now, that there were, there were basically six things that I wanted in a denomination, in my Christian tradition, like <laughs> having seen a lot, literally the globe, having like I need these six things in whatever denomination I'm a part of. Um, it needed to uphold the authority of Scripture, actually, like 
actually believe the Bible, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a good start. Second, that it would recognize and value beauty. Hmm. Um, third was that it was open to mystery, that not everything had to be figured out. Yeah. Um, fourth, that it would allow me to ask real questions without being looked at with suspicion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and would allow me to be passionate about justice, precisely mm-hmm. because it was big, biblical. And then lastly, that um, recognize that church history predates 1517 and would maybe be some sort of platform <laughs> yeah. for Christian unity. Um, yeah. So I knew those things were really important to me. I just didn't know if they existed in a denomination. Yeah. Um, and then in a miraculous way, and it's too long of a story to tell you here, um, the Lord led me to a guy named John Yates um, and a church called at that time the Falls Church Episcopal. Um, and when I met John for the first time, I had never, I had literally never been inside an Episcopal church, certainly never heard, heard of him. Um, and they'd been looking for two years for somebody to do uh, international ministry, inner city ministry and community with young adults, which were exactly the things I wanted to do. And so there I was, a card-carrying Baptist, member of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Um, <laughs> you know, two weeks after meeting John, I was actually hired as the director of outreach. And that oh, wow. was my entrance into the Anglican communion and the Anglican tradition. Um, I did not realize that I was actually looking for Anglicanism before right. I entered that body. Um, yeah. And so um, some years later was ordained very early on, in pre, this is pre-ACNA, um, mm-hmm. and uh, ordained into what would become ACNA. And I was with the Falls Church for a number of years um, in various capacities and also planted one of the Falls Church's daughter churches in Washington, D.C. Oh. So, um, okay. so, yeah, I, I'm grateful. Yeah, yeah I appreciate uh, you outlining those five things. I resonate deeply um, with those things as well, and it's you know, part, of, part of my attraction uh, to this tradition as well. Um, well, one of those things uh, you mentioned uh, was that it would allow you to focus on justice. That's our topic for today. Um, the Christian work of seeking justice for the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, um, the vast arenas of social concern that have animated Anglican faith since the beginning. Um, but the way that some people talk, Bill, I don't know if you've been out there on the internet and uh, you know in, in conferences and stuff like that nowadays, but the way that some people talk, you'd think that pursuing justice was something you know liberals invented 20 years ago. Um, can you give us a brief history of how Anglicans have been involved in justice movements and concerns? Well, yeah, I can at least I can at least highlight some individuals over the centuries that have that have had um, social concern as a as a dominant part of what they did. I mean, um, one of the most noteworthy and early on was John Newton, um, mm. s- slave trader, um, who found Christ, wrote Amazing Grace. Um, and he was, a he was a huge advocate for the abolition of slavery, um, in the early to mid 1700s. And he, he connected with, and he did inspire, uh, some other luminaries like William Wilberforce, Mm -hmm. um, the parliamentarian who, um, sought the abolition of the slave trade, but not just William Wilberforce. I mean, he was, he was surrounded by a whole cadre of Anglicans in different sorts of vocations who were fighting an enormous injustice and racial Mm -hmm. inequity. Um, this is late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, and very famously, um, Lord Shaftesbury, um, in the, uh, 1800s in England, uh, deep Anglican and, Mm -hmm. and very significant social reformer who led the charge against, um, unjust labor, unjust labor laws, uh, Mm -hmm. child labor, 
um, mm-hmm. all sorts of things like that. I mean, he he was he was concerned about every layer of of Victorian society or English society. Um, John Wesley, um, we oftentimes think of him as a Methodist, but he was not. John Wesley right. was actually an Anglican and right. and also an early opponent of slavery. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that's some maybe more historical folks. Um, it would be worthwhile noting, though, somebody who's more contemporary, and that's John Stott, um, mm-hmm. sort of the godfather of theology for evangelicalism, not just Anglicanism. Right. But um, John, John was a, a, a clear and tireless advocate for a huge arena of social concerns and social justice issues. Um, yeah. um, so that's that's those, of course, are all from the Church of England, right? Um, right, right. And it's noteworthy that all those people were evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Like they were evangelicals within that state church who right. were who were calling forth these things. In other words, evangelicals for social justice is actually a deep part of the Anglican tradition. Yes. Um, yes. More contemporarily, we could go to the Global South, Anglicans around mm-hmm. the world, and particularly the Global South. We think about Desmond Tutu in South Africa brokering the end of apartheid, uh, and Archbishop um, John Rusiahana from Rwanda coming out of the genocides in a very significant role, bringing peace and reconciliation and justice. One of my heroes in Anglicanism is uh, Janani Lawum. He was the Archbishop of Uganda from 1974 to 1977. Um, it wasn't long before taking up that role that he was speaking out against the abuses of Idi Amin. Um, and it didn't take very long for Idi Amin to tire of him. And so Idi Amin had him killed in 1977. Wow. Um, Lawum is just such a, he's such a, a I think an important antidote to a prevailing notion about, uh, you might've heard it said, priests ought not to get political. Right. That's actually a very un-Anglican sentiment. Um, yes. and, uh, and certainly right now, when you read the communications from the Global South primates, they oftentimes are talking strongly against the social ills of their time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of Anglicans who I admire in the social justice space or the be people like Gary Haugen, founder of International Justice Mission, Todd mm-hmm. Dethridge, working for peace in Israel and Palestine, Esau Macaulay, of course, one of y'all's priests, yep. Christine Warner out of uh, Austin, mm-hmm. Texas, Sammy DePasquale, David Hankey. There's a whole, there's a whole beautiful list of, of folks who are faithfully carrying on this aspect of the Anglican tradition. And, and again, all evangelical. Yes. Yeah. Well— that's uh, super helpful um, to kind of hear that overview. Um, just this has been a an Esau Macaulay, for example. Uh, I I know of him, you know, because he's in our diocese. But you know, he he's uh, always speaking about these things. That this has always been a part of our faith. This is not even a controversial thing to <laughs> to to talk about. It's like mm-hmm. justice has always been an aspect of this. Well, um, let me let me let me pause on that for a second because mm-hmm. certainly in terms of Anglicanism, it has always been a part of our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as it's not in America. Meaning, yeah. in England, this right. war between like evangelism or social action, it doesn't exist. Yes, This is a particularly yes. American phenomenon when these things are pitted against each other. Yes. It's, it's both uh, globally abnormal and it's historically an anomaly. Yes, yeah. I think that's an important... Uh that's an important thing to uh, to remember as well. I think it gets us out of our 
in America anyway, our provincial kind of mindset that we think that what's happening here is what's happening when it's like, that's, that's actually, we've got this, we got a, actually a strange situation going on here. That's right. That's, right. <laughs> that's you know, there for historical reasons. So, so Bill, um, <clears throat> given that history that you just so lovely uh, recounted, and it's really inspiring, um, and as somebody who's worked in this space and thought about it for a long time, um, what do you make of, what's the, what's the underlying fear or motivation of so much of the concern you hear today about, well, this is just wokeness or mm -hmm. this is a liberal theology married to maybe liberal politics or Marxism, socialism, that sort of thing. I mean, given that long history, where do you suppose this concern comes from? Well, in our American context, it's actually pretty easy to understand. It comes out of the early 1900s um, when you had the rise of what was called the quote-unquote social gospel, where you had uh, mainline denominations particularly really beginning to take seriously some of the prevailing social and systemic ills that was leading to a lot of suffering of a lot of people, mm -hmm. right? And so here you have these Christians who are all of a sudden concerned about, um, you know, uh, aspects of society, particularly as it relates to justice. And it was also at the same time the rise of the teachings of evolution. Um, and uh, those who, you know, the, the more conservative Christians felt mightily under attack. Um, and so there was a tract that was developed, a series of tracts actually, called The Fundamentals, which was an articulation of what are the fundamental aspects of the Christian faith uh, that we ascribe to. And, um, and it was, um, you know, it was very pietistic. Uh, it, was, it was very much rooted around personal holiness and evangelism and, um, and also uh, clarified the things that good Christians don't do. And a lot mm -hmm. of the things that good Christians don't do was exactly what the social gospel people were doing. Um, and, you know, those folks who were, like, uh, becoming more, a little bit more liberal in their action. And so that set off a movement that would come to be called fundamentalism, right, which pitted itself against the perceived threat of uh, liberalism, whether it be in terms of social, uh, social issues or theological concern. And so, you know, it became as easy as, uh, like, if, you know, those Christians over there, they, they drink and smoke. We're not like them. We don't drink and smoke. Those Christians over there are getting loud against Jim Crow. We're not like that. We are going to evangelize. Um, mm -hmm. And so all this whole raft of social issues that became uh, sort of guilt by association if you linked yourself up with them. Right. And right. so it was, it was that strident sort of um, anti-culture posture that gave rise to evangelicalism with Billy Graham mm -hmm. and John Ockenke and all that. And they're like, uh, we need a different way of engaging our contemporary society. That gave rise to this movement, evangelicalism, which still has carried over with a lot of suspicion about not wanting to get like too active. Because if you do that, then somehow you're becoming more liberal. Um, yeah. And so it's really, really unfortunate, say during the civil rights movement, that it was not the evangelical churches that were in the lead on that, Right. And the very same reasons that we heard then, or you know, we hear it now, which is, well, you know, that's not our realm. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, or we just want to be about the quote unquote gospel, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, that's partly why, Todd, there's this ongoing dynamic of suspicion, I think, about getting too active or too woke or whatever on particular issues. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, a number of years ago, Bill, I did a really deep dive into that era of church history with Graham and Ockengay and Carl Henry and all those guys. And as you said, their 
reaction and they're trying to kind of reinvent church. I don't know that they would have used that language, but certainly reinvent evangelism um, kind of over and against that kind of fundamentalism. I hadn't thought about it till you were saying it, but it feels like something similar to that is happening today where a number of us are trying to grapple with a new way of um, hanging on to the fullness of Jesus's teaching of the kingdom um, against the backdrop of something that, you know, is, uh, I, I don't mean this to call names, but sort of a modern version of fundamentalism or something. It feels like there's well, a new uh, a new impetus to do something similar to what yes, Graham no, and Ockengay and Henry and those guys were doing. Yeah, and I would, I would I've actually, not a, I don't know if I'd coined a term, but I've come up with a term that I think describes some of the dynamic. Um, and that is, and I think this is with, within within evangelicalism, which this, I don't know where all this goes, but there is a definitely a rise of what I'm coming to call a neo-fundamentalism, mm. um, which is defining itself against things, yeah. as well as trying to protect itself from the influence of things. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's that. There's the, oh my gosh, here come, you know, here come the woke folks. We better, we better double down on the fact that we know that this is just the camel's nose coming inside the tent and get those people out of here, you know, for the sake of our own purity, theological yep. purity and our kids, yep. whatever. There's that. And then you've got other, um, you've got other uh, Christians who are, you know, kind of tired of that mentality a long time ago and have kind of raced away from the church. They're still consider themselves to be Christian, but it's really, really broad, perhaps right. more broad than I would be comfortable with. Mm. Um, and then you've got these folks in the middle. It's like, hmm, I'm not like super liberal but I'm not neo-fundamental either. I do care about Jesus and I do care about the poor. Where do I, where, where, where mm -hmm. do I live? And mm -hmm. um, so I think we're probably, uh, I heard this reference the other day in a CT article, Christianity Today article, um, that we are living in the early stages of what uh, the author called the third fracture of mm -hmm. evangelicalism, um, mm -hmm. 1830s, 1930s, and now. Wow. It's like, yeah, that kind of feels accurate. Wow. And that these forces have been, you know, working for a while now. It's just, my gosh, last year and, you know, last year was so revealing. Um, oh, yeah. Last, you know, both the summer of last year as well as the election and the wake of the election, it was, mm -hmm. it was revealing just how powerful these various forces are and, yeah. and, and the, the straining to try to hold together if they even can hold together. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could uh, – we could go into that history. Uh, it sounds like uh, we could do a deep dive into that history. Uh, but one of the things we're, we're trying to do here is hold these things together, mm -hmm. right? Um, instead of just succumb to this, um, you know, uh, these fractured, fracturing movements. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I like about Coracle's mission, as I've been looking uh, at your website, um, Bill, that you bring together two things um, that are often thought of as completely separated things. Um, you mentioned spiritual formation, and then you talk about kingdom action. And by that, you mean justice and reconciliation, you mean peacemaking, creation care, all of that kind of thing. Why, why is it important in your mind to hold those things together, formation and action? Yeah. Um, well, I think as a Christian, first and foremost... Uh, I would say because Jesus did. Mm. I mean, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Jesus did. Uh, yeah. I love, I love, I love how he so regularly went out in times of solitude, 
right? And mm-hmm. prayer and reflection. In fact, one of the one of the passages that references that says, and Jesus got up, went out early to a solitary place, as was his custom. Right. right. As was his custom. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that Jesus did that three or four times and you know, no, it was his custom to do this. So you get this picture of Jesus as one who was, you know, you know, deeply, uh, deeply in union with his father, right? Yeah. But then when he's walking around his own society, um, you know, the very first public words out of his mouth relative to Luke 4, you see what's on his agenda. I'm coming to bring good news to the poor. Yep. That was his inauguration sermon, you know, like where you lay out what you're going to do and like right. good news to the poor, liberty for the oppressed. Right, right. Um, and then when you see him walking around, you see him always with an orientation towards those on the margins of society or those who have been rejected by their society. Um, yes. Oftentimes, going out of his way to um, to announce to them that the kingdom of God has come for you too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to the systems that generated some of those dynamics, um, Jesus didn't speak about it often, but when he did, he was. He was blunt and he was mad. I'm talking about Matthew 23, where he right. he uh, really um, challenges the church of his mm-hmm. day because of their letting religion get in the way of justice. So, you know, holding these things together, well, first and foremost, because Jesus did. Um, mm. But um, you know, to get a, to get an image, I just I just think of a, a bird. Ben, how mm-hmm. many wings does it take for a bird to fly? Right. right. Two, right? Two. And so, yeah. you know, I just feel like, you know, these are two wings of the same bird. It's, it's, it's this, the, the bird yes. is the good news of Jesus Christ. The two wings are spiritual formation, contemplation, prayer, and then action, like, mm-hmm. like getting into the world and, and doing God's work in the world. Um, mm. Another image that's helpful here is that of uh, a spring and a stream, you know, that is a, a spring which bubbles up with water, Right. Um, and then it, it creates a stream going out, and the spring doesn't have anywhere to go. It becomes stagnant. If the stream loses connection with the spring, it goes dry. These yeah. things these things belong together. And it's really tragic, in fact, really tragic. Uh, in fact, I'll even use a word, um, disaster, because this is the word that John Stott mm. used. Wow. Um, he was reflecting on this. Um, he was reflecting on the so-called war between evangelism and social action, and I think we could include that, these spiritual formation as well. And he says, he says, um, he says the, the polarization between those two has been a disaster um, mm. and that the church needs to recover both of those emphases uh, in a way that holds them together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I, I do realize that these days it does feel a little bit novel that you would have something <laughs> that emphasized sort of the deep contemplative interior, like me and my you know, connection to God, me and my increasing Christ-likeness, mm-hmm. um, that combined with a pretty, you know, a pretty robust uh, take on issues of creation care and race yeah. and yeah. all those sorts of things. And um, that it would be unusual is a tragedy. Yes. You know? Yes. Hey everybody, welcome once again to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight, where we highlight the specific ministry we're praying for this week in our diocesan cycle of prayer. This week we're praying for St. James Anglican Church in San Jose, California, uh, which is led by the Reverend Cindy Stansbury, and she has joined us now to share briefly about what's going on and how we can pray for them. Cindy, welcome back to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. We were 
we were doing this just about a year ago and here we are again. Yeah. I, I have a hard time thinking about like a year. My brain is still sort of, you know, thinking yes. pre pandemic and, and during pandemic. So 18 I know. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It feels like, uh, it, it's hard to believe that a year has gone by and we we're still dealing with this. So, yeah. uh, well, what's, uh, right now, what's one thing that you're encouraged by that's happening at St. James? Well, one of the things that's actually encouraging is during this time, my goal was to, you know, make sure that we're providing hospitality for a place to come and worship. And so I'd say that thanks to like a very dedicated team of a small team of staff and volunteers, St. James has faithfully served as a place to gather and worship and connect and learn both in person and online. Hmm. So we have like three or four weekly Bible studies that are going on that are well attended. Some people are going to like all three of them. Um, we have services each week that are both, you know, that are indoor, outdoor, and online. Um, we currently have like 15 kids on a Sunday morning sometimes. Hmm. And then the usual births and baptisms and confirmations. Yeah. Yes. Uh, during during a pandemic, that's no uh, small thing. So <laughs> that's wonderful yeah. thing to celebrate. Um, how about something that uh, you're feeling challenged by right now? Well, I mean, there has been a lot going on in the lives of all of those key people. And we have mm. a fair amount of dependence on a few key people. And that is getting fatiguing um, yes. in the midst of everything else that's, that's happening, including, you know, health issues in our families and things like mm -hmm. that. So, mm -hmm. um, okay. yeah, that, that would be one challenge. Yeah. Is that there's what's happening is good, what's happening is healthy, but there's um, a lot of, you know, places that we're vulnerable to people, you know, being taken out in one way or another, either just traveling yeah. or yeah. or other issues. Okay. Um, well, in light of all this, how can we pray for you and for St. James right now? If you could pray for sort of backup and support so we could have more resiliency for some of those key um, people for like AV Tech and Setup, mm -hmm. Alter Guild. Right now we have a wonderful monthly Sunday school teacher, but we'd like to have weekly Sunday school. Yeah. And then protection for leaders and volunteers and their families. Okay. And then another thing is we need to finish getting some of the renovation done, especially having a functional sacristy would make life for the Alter Guild much easier. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. And then there's the usual challenges of outdoor services. It's an yes. opportunity to sort of share the service with neighbors, hopefully mm -hmm. in a non-intrusive way. Mm -hmm. But then we sometimes have had like a parade of Harleys for 15 minutes during the service, <laughs> leaf blowers for 15 yeah. minutes before somebody could run around the corner and ask them to please stop, you know, worship <laughs> the dogs joining in in the worship and trash cans. So. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, that's great. We'll um, keep all of that in prayer. Um, thanks for joining us today, uh, Cindy. Thank you. Uh, if you'd uh, listeners, if you'd like to find out more about St. James Anglican Church or contribute to their work, check out the link in the show notes. What have you found have been, as you've sought to um, mobilize people, specifically Anglicans, you know, this is mostly Anglicans probably listening to this podcast, um, what have you found to be the biggest obstacles to Anglicans committing themselves to the work of justice and mm -hmm. peacemaking and creation care and those kinds of things? Yeah. I think, you know, to be both honest and sad, uh, 
Um, I think one of the biggest barriers to Anglicans engaging these things uh, is the fact that uh, we left the Episcopal Church, which had a lot of emphasis on those things. Mm. And so it's kind of like, hey, we just left all that. You know, those guys got loud about justice and race and stuff like that. And look at, they went liberal. We're leaving all that. Mm-hmm. So we are not going to go down that direction because we've seen where that ends. And right. so this real fear of like going back to Egypt, yeah. um, I think is, I think it's actually, I think it's actually potent and effectual. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for, I mean, justice is a biblical word. Right, right. And for us to um, be skittish around it, A, it's not to be biblical. B, mm-hmm. if we don't dive deeply into that concept in Scripture and come away with something actionable, then we are not being faithful to Scripture. Yeah. So, I've been in context, I've been in context, Anglican context, where the word justice, just the word, evokes a reaction, if not yep. critique. Yep. And my gosh, that's, that's really bad when there's a, a, not just a word, but a concept in the Scripture that is unable to be engaged because somehow that's a liberal word. Right. That's um we are on we're on really shaky ground there. Yeah. Um so what we what we don't need is we don't need to just like uncritically start tossing around the word justice. What we do need is to understand what is the Bible actually saying and how can we do that. Yeah. And if by doing that we end up looking a little bit like the Episcopalians, oh well, we end up looking a bit like the Episcopalians, doesn't matter. Because right. we want to yeah. look biblical more than anything. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really well said that there is there is a deep uh fear. Um, of the slippery slope, right? The, the, the deep fear of the slippery slope that um, ends up uh, hobbling yeah. our ability to take seriously yeah. uh, this work. Yeah, and so my response to that would be, John Stott could do it. Why can't we? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, so what's, what's at stake here, uh, Bill, in our commitment to, to justice and doing this work? Uh, like you said, the, sometimes, sometimes I think we, we have the idea that this is sort of an optional extracurricular activity for people who are into that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm hearing you describe it as something more important than that. What would you say is at stake in this for us? Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that question because it sometimes is perceived as optional. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> but what's at stake here most deeply is that we, when we are not um, manifesting an orientation toward justice, <laughs> we are not imaging God well. Yeah. We are actually failing in our fundamental human vocation to image mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. So out of the Psalms, um, Psalm 146, the Lord executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the widow and the father. This is what the Lord does. And when we are not doing that stuff, we are not putting the Lord on display. And let's just remember that the whole purpose of human beings is to put the Lord on display, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so justice, like things like love, forgiveness, mercy, our call to these things is deeply rooted in the, in, in the character of God himself, right? Why do we love? Because God is love. Why do we forgive? Mm-hmm. Because God forgives. Why do we do mercy? Because God does mercy. Why do we do justice? Because God is just, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it is, this is, so I would say that, that to pursue justice in the world is absolutely not 
an optional extracurricular activity. It's actually as central to our life as a disciple as these other things that I've mentioned. Yes. Um, and so, woe be to me if I take my eye off the ball of becoming a person who is marked by forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Similarly, woe be to me if I take my eye off the ball of being a person of justice. Yes. They're, they're rooted yeah. in the same God, you know? Yes. Um, and so, that's at stake. Um, there's another thing or two. I don't know if you want to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just in contrast to the fears, you know, of the slippery slope and being, you know, looking like a, a group of people we don't want to look like maybe or something like that. I think, I think that just, it, it also um, just brings up the necessity of addressing those fears, right? Addressing, you know, why does this feel like such, why does, why does being associated with this other group feel like such a huge threat to me that it would actually threaten my ability to image God in the world? Mm-hmm. Like it's become more important to me than following Jesus, in, you could almost say, right? Mm-hmm. That, that being identified as the person on the right team becomes more important. So I don't know. There's, not, there's no question in that for me. I'm just resonating with it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. And um I think I think that we can do a better job um, mm. of helping of helping people understand um, yeah. both biblical justice as well as the God's overall <laughs> God's overall concern for the kingdom coming into the world in ways that people can actually experience. Yes, you know, um, yes. you know. I think that yes. you know one of the one of the downsides of the development of U.S. evangelicalism in the last hundred years has been this, you know, it's, it's not an, it's not an unimportant emphasis, but it is, it can be an overemphasis. And that is on, um, you know, sort of getting people saved so that they have a better eternity and that that's actually the thing that matters. It's not that that Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. It's just, that's not the only thing that matters, you know? Um, and so we can do a better job, I think of, of teaching, yeah. yeah. The yeah, other thing I was sure. going to say, what's at stake here, um, uh, is just our own witness. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And credibility, actually. Um, yeah. You know, it's been true for a very, 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 very long time. And I think it's also true now. And that is that if the church doesn't have a robust response and a, and a godly, robust, kingdom-articulated response to something as evil as racism that affects, you know, millions and millions and millions of people. It's like, tell me how y'all are actually relevant to the world that I actually live in. Right, right, right. You know? Um, exactly. I mean, you know, that was true from 1619 to 1776. It was true from 1776 to 1865. It was true from 1865 to 1965. And 60 years later, it is as true now, mm-hmm. you know? So right now, if the church is all about God, but saying nothing about race, tell me how that's relevant right now. Yeah. Yes. And again, not that these things are exclusive. They are. And they're, they're, they're not exclusive. It's right. just you just end up talking more about more things, and it's okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> um, could go down that uh, rabbit uh, rabbit trail for quite, <laughs> quite some time. Um, that's really good. That's really well said, Bill. Um, all right. Well, you ready for a rapid fire? Yeah, man. Round? We've we've been doing this with some of our guests, um, where yeah. just you, you just give a rapid answer to the question and uh, no explanation, and it leaves people wondering sometimes, maybe. So anyway, all right. Here we go. What is the last book you finished? Any any genre? Uh, yeah. So a week or two ago, I finished a reread of a novel by Susan Howitch called hmm. Glittering Images. Um, that 
looks at the <laughs> looks at a, an unusual priest and an unusual spiritual spiritual director yeah. in the Church of England. And I oh. just started Mark Helprin's book uh, called "A Soldier uh, A Soldier of the Great War." Um, was turned on to that because Andy Crouch said of it, he wouldn't trust any pastor who hadn't read it. So it's like, huh, oh, I want oh. Andy to trust me. So. <laughs> right, <laughs> I right. want to read that one. I want, I want to read that one down too. Uh, Todd, have you read, you were nodding your head. Have you read uh, no, I, I had read that series that, uh, okay. there's a whole series around glitter, glittering images that I read a few okay. years ago. They're fascinating. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. Who's your favorite sort of justice-oriented figure from Anglican history yeah. and why? Man, you know, it's this is going to sound really trite, but it's, I think, probably William Wilberforce. Um, mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. just him, but his group of friends as well. I mean, yeah. they are, he and they, and it was a they, are right. really inspiring. Yeah. Is that the Clapham mm-hmm. sect? Is yes. that what that's called? Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. I've got a, a book about them on my shelf somewhere. One of them that I haven't read, so. Yeah. <laughs> You're inspiring me. Maybe maybe I need to go back and read through it. Um, what wearies you, tires you out more than almost anything? Yeah. Um, I think it's when I see this happen or when it happens to me, and that is when I am, um, when I'm talking about something like race in America um, and a Christian response to it, when the reaction to that is either you are becoming liberal or you already are liberal or that somehow I'm becoming less orthodox because yeah. I'm trying to talk deeply about this deep issue. Yes. That's really, really, really tiring. I would just want to go on the record with you guys. And I like, I love Jesus. I love Jesus Christ. I love the Bible. I love, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. nothing unorthodox about me. And so when someone says, Hey, you know, let's not be, let's not be talking about that because that's dangerous. It's like, why is it dangerous? It's not dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So that really makes me tired. Okay. And yeah. and also I would say when I see that happening to other people as well. Yes. It's like yes. that's just so unfortunate. That's you know, a bit of a waste of emotional energy. <laughs> Amen. What uh on the flip side of that, yeah. what most energizes you about the work that you do? Yeah. Um, you know, Coracle is about uh spiritual formation and so it fires me up when I see people coming alive in Christ and being able to more clearly know who they are in Christ and how God has made them, and then watch them confidently offer that into the world mm. with great joy. Like when, mm. I, when, I see somebody, when I see somebody operating out of the power of God um, mm. in their own unique way, I love it. So, mm. you know, our mission statement is not actually about spiritual formation for kingdom action. Our mission, that, those are means to an end, mm-hmm. right? So the mission is actually to inspire and enable people to be the presence of God in the world through right. spiritual formation. Right. Yeah, formation. through this. Yeah, through this. So yeah, I, I love really it. Great. I love it when I see somebody, you know, who they're they're weary, they're worn down, they're dissatisfied. You know, a year or two or three later, like in a completely different place, um, because they've done the work of spiritual yeah. formation. Beautiful. Uh, all right, one last question in our rapid fire round here. What was the when was the last time you belly laughed? And, and what what and what caused it? I don't remember the last time, but this one was memorable. <laughs> Sometime late in COVID, I had let my hair grow long because you could. Um, oh yeah. And um, and one night, one of my girls was talking about how bald I was on top. <laughs> it's like I don't see that because I only see <laughs> right, the front. Right, right, and right. so I was like, I was like, I'm not that bald. And uh, uh-huh. and so she took a picture of the top of my head and then showed me, and I was shocked. <laughs> 
and flabbergasted <laughs> and amazed. And my wife was thought it was so funny at how shocked I was, of course, because she sees it, right? right that she, she, she just started laughing her head off uproariously. Mm. She was belly laughing and her belly laughing made me belly laugh. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that was fun and funny and also quite disconcerting. I've given my <laughs> wife the uh, veto power. It's like whenever I take it all off like you got there, Ben, you can do that. But it's yeah. not quite there yet. So I'm still going to pretend for a little while that I got a thick head of hair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very similar story for me about why I started just shaving my head is I, I got a glimpse of my bald spot one too many times. And I was like, <laughs> man, it's like there's hardly anything back there anymore. Why am I even trying? Um, Todd, you had quite a mop. Uh, during COVID as well. I did, yeah. You, yeah. But, you know, my, my hair gets long and unruly. Yeah. It doesn't it get was, long, it gets big. Yeah, it, uh, it you did. Your head's out like twice the size. I know. Every time I talked with you on Zoom, I was like, wow. <laughs> is, is that guy ever going to get a haircut? Uh, you, you eventually did. You, you, look, you look nice now, Todd. Thank you so well much, done. Ben. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's uh, finish this up maybe with uh, making things practical. Um, actually, I, I did have one question for mm -hmm. you, Bill, about um, something concrete that you guys are doing right now. Coracle, I noticed, is right in the middle of a book discussion about Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan's book, Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Um, what's the most challenged uh, What's most challenged you so far in your reading uh, of that book with Coracle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we are we are uh, we're in the middle of this five week series book. It's a book mm -hmm. study. It's a book club. So it's not a lot of teaching. It's a lot of like read the book and then talk about it. So yeah. I'm delighted. I mean, we have like 80 people doing this. Um, That's great. Wow. And so I'm really excited that there are 80 people, at least that I know, who are you know engaging this thing seriously enough to yeah. have yeah. discussion over a series of weeks. Um, I got I had the you know opportunity to see an advanced copy of that late last year and I read it and I was so moved not moved isn't the right word I was so grateful um, mm. for Duke and Greg's book uh, I, I emailed them both and I just said guys this is really important I think this is actually groundbreaking the yeah. way that they frame it and the way that they approach it and so um, uh, so I'll come back to your question about what's challenged me but I want to sure. start with why I've been really helped and it's because of the way Duke and Greg are not, you know, usually when you hear the word reparations, immediately, immediately one's mind goes to how is the government going to make financial remuneration to the descendants of the enslaved, right? Right. And, and what Duke and Greg's book does is like, that's A, not the right place to start, and B, that's a profound failure of imagination, and C, it doesn't even actually address the issue. Mm -hmm. Because the issue of yep. reparations is not... Uh, trying to make reparations for the institution of slavery. Rather, it's trying to repair the ongoing impact of white supremacy, of which slavery was but one example. That's good. So yeah. right there, right there, right off the bat, it's like, oh, we're not just talking about slavery. Mm -hmm. We're actually talking about the engine of a society with a yes. lot of different more forms. And so, um, and so, and then secondly, um, the audience of the book and is is Christian, right. period, full stop. Like yep. it's for us, you know. And I yep. also think that's super valuable too. So this is this is not Tanahisi Coates just writing in the Atlantic um, right. for everybody. Um, right. Nor is it a Christian saying, "Hey, this is what the U.S. government's got to do." Rather, right. it's a Christian take on a on a on a more deeply embedded problem than I think we give credit for. Yep. Directly then talking, okay, so what's the church's role in this since the church has also had a has also had a role within the systems that generated 
uh, such tremendous inequity over so many centuries. So I think, so that's where it blesses me. Where it challenges me is, um, is to think not simply about history, but also ongoing impact of, um, of the way that uh, black folk and black culture um, have, um, has really been, have, have, how they've been taken in one form or another. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really well said. I, um, that book, I, I agree. I think that's a, it's a uh, groundbreaking and important book. Um, and there is a, um, I, I don't want to be too forward and invite people to something they're not actually invited to, but I, I did find out that you guys have something called a sounding seminar with Greg and Duke on October 14th at 12:30 yeah. Eastern time. Is anybody invited? Absolutely. To that? In fact, I was going to mention it if you didn't. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, so really delighted that, um, well, first of all, Greg and Duke are going to join for the last session of the book club. So that's awesome. Okay, but then the following cool. week um, on the October 14th, Thursday, 1230 EST. Yeah. We're going to have a seminar with me in conversation with Greg and Duke about the church's role in reparations. Um, mm. And so uh, that's open to anybody. We would love to have as many folks participate as they can. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes if, uh, if y'all, I, I, I think I'd like to register for it and, uh, and attend. I think it'll be a good conversation. Um, well, let's finish up with some uh, practical uh, stuff here. What, what are some good resources or other practical next steps uh, for people who might be listening to this and are thinking, you know what, I would like to do this. I'd like to get more serious about pursuing the work of justice yeah. and other kinds of kingdom action. Um, what next steps would you give people? Yeah. Well, Initially, I would say just just become familiar with what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think Tim <laughs> Keller's book, Generous Justice, does an excellent job of, of a very solid baseline for this discussion, you know, really helping us understand biblical justice and, uh, and its implications. Um, similarly, John Stott, you know, he published a couple of books, uh, one called um, Human Rights and Human Wrongs. Another one called Our Social and Sexual Revolution. These are these are books that came a little bit later in his life, but uh, but they are picking up they are picking up issues of the day that are still issues of the day, right? But coming at it from from a perspective like he would. So there's be a couple of uh, written written resources and okay. and then just engaging people of color. You know, I'm so grateful for Esau's book. I think that's a great a great place to start and the work of Jamar Tisby. Um, mm-hmm. Just you know. Uh, submitting ourselves to to folks who are coming from a different, uh, perhaps, background than we are, I think is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Coracle has tons of resources on our website on racial reconciliation and our various initiatives and, and stuff. Yeah. And then uh, within the ACNA, there's a beautiful network called Matthew 25, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a network of ACNA ministries and churches that are really oriented around both, uh, both mercy and justice, and uh, to go to, to to look up Matthew twenty five ACNA, find out who's doing what work and what interests yeah. me, and how can I find out more about that? I think it'd be great. Okay. Um, do you want to say anything about the fellowship program? I know that uh, Coracle has um, something called a fellowship yeah. program. It's kind of a it's a lot more extensive than any of the other things. But go ahead and say a couple yeah, words sure. about Thanks. what you guys do. Yeah. So this uh, the Coracle Fellowship is a twelve month spiritual formation program. Uh, 12 retreats over 12 months um, mm-hmm. where we we go deep into God's love for us. We reflect on what it's like to lead a more contemplative life. We, we do a deep dive in true self and false self and stages of spiritual growth. And then we start looking mm-hmm. at what does it mean to be kingdom agents in the world? What is the kingdom of God? What does it mean to act for the kingdom of God? How does our spiritual formation relate to that? How do I apply that in my vocation, in my work? 
Um, mm. And what about what about the coming of the kingdom of God impacts my life now? What's my what's the hope of my future that's drawing, that's driving me? Uh, talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, being able to hear God's voice to us, consecrating <laughs> our pain, the Eucharistic life, abandonment to God, man, right? <laughs> Woo! Getting, getting getting yourself excited? Yeah, just I am. About it. I yeah. am because. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a it's a twelve month spiritual formation program that our experience is that people come in one way and they leave different. So that's um, that's actually able to be done completely online now as well. So wherever yeah. one of your listeners happens to be, they can do it. Okay, very. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Bishop Todd, any final reflections for us as you've uh, participated in this conversation? Yeah, I think I would just <clears throat> want to say to all of our listeners how. Um, very much I respect Bill and Coracle and could not recommend anybody or anything uh, more highly. I mean, we, we have a lot of similarities in the things we care about, but um, in, in some ways, um, Bill's further ahead than I am. It's one of the ways that we became friends through our mutual friend, Greg Thompson, is helping me put wheels on things that I've been thinking about for two or three years, but hadn't gotten around to put uh, wheels on. And so I'm, as I said at the beginning of the show, I, I said it uh, kiddingly, but I wasn't kidding. Uh, Bill's uh, actually a mentor to me and helping me to take, if I have any expertise in anything, and I'm not sure I do, but if I have any expertise in anything, it would probably be somewhere in the realm of formation and um, trying to leverage um, that life that I've lived for the last three decades or more and leverage it towards issues of current justice um, is my big passion, and Bill's a, a great help, and I'm, I'm grateful. Well, those are very awesome. kind words, Todd, and I would just say I've been so grateful for the, your ministry and the ministry of C4SO. I've sort of observed from afar, and for me, this is just a great delight to, you know, just to be with you all uh, in a little bit more of, a, of an intentional way, so thank you. Yeah, you're yeah. welcome. Glad for our yeah. community to get Super to meet you. Super great to have you with us, Bill. If uh, people want to stay connected with you or with uh, the Ministry of Coracle, how can they do that? Yeah, uh, easiest way is to go to our website, uh, inthecoracle.org, um, okay. and look around, and then also to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Okay, yep. very good. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. Again, Bill, great to have you with us. God bless you guys. again for listening to this episode of the C4SO podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.